Hi, this is Sean Fenske from Medical Product Outsourcing, and I'm here for another episode of Mike on MedTech. As always, joining me is Mike Drews of Vascular Sciences to provide a little insight and some uh, some of his vast experience on the medical device industry. Uh, last uh, podcast, we focused on 3D printing, and one of the topics that came up uh, within that discussion was uh, materials. So we thought it would be a good idea to kind of address that topic today exclusively, uh, focusing specifically on, on biomaterials and biocompatibility and some of the different elements and aspects that go along with materials within the medical device industry uh, that, that create a bit of a differentiation between them. So, uh, Mike, I'd like to uh, kick it off with basically just a, a general question. Really, can you just explain what the difference is between a material uh, that device, many device manufacturers are used to using and a biomaterial that not all of them may be used to using? So, first of all, Sean, thanks for the opportunity to, uh, to chat with you and your audience today. Always a pleasure. Um, that's a great place to start, a very basic place. So, a material uh, is just uh, matter that something can be made out of. And, obviously, that is a, is a very broad definition. So, moving specifically to biomaterials, biomaterials are a subset of materials that we typically make medical products out of. Um, I suppose for the po focuses for the purpose of this discussion, we'll focus on medical devices. So medical devices um, are made of materials, many of them biomaterials, and biomaterials are sort of uh, designed and tested to either come in contact with a patient, perhaps in in the skin contact indication, or in some cases go inside of a patient, either temporarily or in other situations for the rest of their life. So clearly the challenges of dealing with biomaterials, especially materials that are going to go inside of a person, are much greater than uh, using materials in other applications. Well, you actually make a, a great transition into my next question, which uh, when you're talking about uh, biomaterials or, or even materials, what, what's the difference? You know, we hear biocompatible being thrown around, but what's the difference between a biocompatible material versus a biofriendly material? That's a terrific question, Sean, and I suspect the vast majority of your audience is very familiar with the biocompatible term. That's been around for nearly 100 years. What some in your audience may not be familiar with is a relatively new term that some of us have coined called biofriendly. So let's start out on the biocompatible side. Biocompatibility, the very simple definition is, for my definition is we put a material inside of a patient and they do not drop dead. And that sounds very flippant, but it's meant to be because biocompatible simply means the body tolerates the material. The body doesn't necessarily like the material. So this is a little biomaterials 101, which is really nothing more than immunology 101. Oftentimes when people ask me they want to learn more about biomaterials, I say, fine, study immunology. Because the way your immune system, specifically your white blood cells, view uh, a material is very, very similar to the way they view a bacteria or a virus or some, some other form of, in immunology, what we call an antigen. So taking bio, uh, uh, Biomaterials 101 a half a step further, here's basically what happens. 
the uh, you put a, a medical device made out of uh, some biomaterial biocompatible material into a patient the immune system recognizes this material as foreign it says hey i don't know what this thing is it doesn't seem to be helping me it doesn't seem to be hurting me either so i'm going to kind of cover it up and forget about it in biomaterials that's what we call encapsulization and for at least the last half century most people thought that's as good as it gets but more recently in the last decade or so uh, some folks uh, have tried to set the bar and say hey biocompatible is not good enough anymore we want to strive for biofriendly materials biofriendly materials are materials that the body really likes not just simply tolerates but likes think about it this way Sean uh, as, you, as you and your audience know, uh, we make lots of medical devices out of metals like stainless steel and tantalum and titanium, uh, ceramics, as well as polymers like Dacron and Teflon and urethane. And if I were to ask a biomedical uh, engineer or a medical device engineer what kind of materials that we make medical devices out of, they would probably list many that I just, um, uh, that I just described. But if I were to ask a biochemist or a physiologist exactly the same question, what kind of materials that we find inside the body, they would say uh, um, proteins. Proteins are nothing more than polymers of amino acids. They would say nucleic acids, DNAs and, and RNA. Those are nothing more than polymers of nucleic acids. They would say carbohydrates and lipids. Those are also polymers as well. So in a certain sense, uh, one can ask the question, if you're not born with metal or synthetic polymers like urethane or Dacron inside of your body, should we be putting it inside of your body? Maybe we've been going in the totally wrong direction. Maybe we should be using more biopolymers, things that are more, quote-unquote, natural, if you will. Because once again, if you're not born with it or if your body doesn't make it, should we be using it to make a medical device out of? Something to think about. Yeah, definitely. And, uh, you know, getting, getting further into, into the differentiation of, of material types, what about biostable materials and, and how are they different from, say, bioabsorbable or biodegradable materials? Another terrific question, Sean. So a biostable material and the vast majority of materials that we make medical devices out of today are what we call biostable. A biostable uh, means exactly what it implies. We put the material in the body and it does not change. It does not break down uh, mechanically and it certainly does not break down chemically. Um, and we've been doing that for a very long time, but when you look at all of the materials that are in your body, and by the way, a synonym for the word tissue is material. There are no tissues in your body that are, uh, that are stable, so to speak. All tissues, including your bone, for example, are constantly being broken down and built back up again. So that's what the body is designed to do. That's the way it's, you know, it's, it's, it's supposed to work. So the, once again, the question is, do we want to do that uh, with our, the materials that we make our medical devices out of? You asked about bioabsorbable or sometimes referred to as biodegradable materials. Biodegradable materials are materials, as the name implies, uh, that actually break down, not just physically or mechanically, but chemically in the body. 
um, probably the best-known example of a bioabsorbable material, uh, something that's been around for probably a century, is bioabsorbable suture material, or catgut. But here's one of the big challenges that we face with bioabsorbable material, Sean, and this is one of the reasons, unfortunately, we do not have many medical devices out there uh, that are made of bioabsorbable materials, is because when a material breaks down in your body, not just physically but chemically, now you're getting suspiciously close to the world of drugs. And this is something, obviously, that for the most part, medical device companies, at least historically, have really tried to stay away from. Um, so I hate to say it, being a regulatory consultant myself, but it can be a real challenge to get companies to consider using some of these newer, more advanced materials, not simply because of the, the technical, the engineering, or the biological challenges, but because of the regulatory challenges as well. So coming back just to, as a quick example, using that bioabsorbable suture material or catgut uh, as an example, um, as I said, catgut has been around for probably 100 years, maybe more. But if catgut was new today, would it get onto the market? That is not a simple question, and I believe anybody that gives just a simple yes or no answer to that question really doesn't understand the world in which we live um, because that is the medical device equivalent of asking the same question about aspirin. Aspirin, like catgut, has been around for, what, 100 years? But if aspirin was new today, would it get onto the market? That's, again, not a simple question. Although, uh, it, to, to respond to your question, not necessarily with an answer, but at least with a, a real-world case uh, uh, situation, we did see Abbott's uh, drug-eluting stent that was bioabsorbable see uh, approval last year. So definitely see that the OEMs are, are interested in that material or, or you know, bioabsorbable materials and, and are willing to to, uh, uh, you know, experiment, do R&D with them, and here's one that actually made it through to market. So You're, you're uh, exactly right, Sean. Thank you for pointing that out. Um, obviously, I'm generalizing here uh, to a certain extent, stereotyping across the industry. There are exceptions, and you certainly pointed out a, a very good, very valid exception. But unfortunately, it still is very much the exception rather than the rule. And Absolutely. I would argue, not just as a regulatory uh, consultant, but as a professional biomedical engineer, that's what my PhD is in. And I sometimes act as a subject matter expert in biomaterials for FDA as well as companies. Um, I would argue that we should have had a heck of a, let me say it this way, I'm sorry. We should have a heck of a lot more medical devices on the market today that are made of bioabsorbable materials. We have a few. You mentioned one. There are certainly others, but that's, not the, uh, that, that's still the exception, unfortunately, rather than the rule. Oh, without, without question, and, and probably one of the only reasons why I can cite that, that specific example right off the top of my head is we just closed the uh, top 30 uh, company report, and uh, it was that, that specific device was uh, mentioned in, in Abbott's report, but I, I don't think I could give you a, a second example, so it certainly is the exception, as you said. Well, um, I could give a but, few, but, but, but there, are, there, there are a few. Again, for the benefit of the audience, you know, I am, I, I will admit, I'm I'm generalizing, I'm stereotyping, but uh, I am trying to raise the bar um, because right. I do think that we need more companies doing this. 
Absolutely. Uh, and then, so, so you mentioned FDA. Let's, let's talk a little bit about the, the rules for, for some of these biomaterials. And, and you know, are, are the rules or the regulations over these biomaterials different from, from more standard or more traditional materials? Uh, you know, what, what's, the, what's the guidance there? So, great question. Um, obviously, there are a number of regulatory requirements, quote-unquote, for uh, biomaterials, um, especially for materials that are going to go inside of a body and especially for those that are going to go inside of a body for the rest of a patient's life. Um, so, FDA has put out um, uh, at least eight guidance documents in the general area of biomaterials, uh, and I'm sorry, biocompatibility. Um, most of them pretty specific. They get into uh, specific areas like, for example, dental. Uh, there's even a recent guidance uh, on animal-derived biomaterials. Um, but the most commonly referred to guidance in the biomaterial area is the one that just came out last year in 2016 um, on what's called ISO um, uh, ISO 1093, 10, I'm sorry, ISO 10, 10993 Part 1, which is Biological Evaluation of Medical Devices. And uh, that's the most commonly used guidance that the industry looks at today in terms of biocompatibility um, uh, testing requirements for, for medical devices. And in that guidance, um, FDA provides a, uh, a couple of tables, a checklist, if you will, for the types of biocompatibility testing that may be required depending on um, the, the application. Um, so cytotoxicity, uh, genotoxicity, um, uh, hemocompatibility, and so on. I don't think it's necessary to get into the different specific types of testing, but here's what I would suggest to your audience because I see this happen all the time. So many topics in regulatory and quality today have become nothing more than tick box on a form. In other words, uh, here's this guidance with this table. It tells me that if I'm use, developing a device, for example, that's an implantable device, I need to do the following tests. Test number one, check. Test number two, check. And I've said publicly many times, and I mean this sincerely, anybody that approaches this business with, with that tick box on a form, with a check box on a form mentality, really should not be in this business because I view this guidance as well as every guidance and, and everything else for that matter as suggestion, as guidance, as a starting point. Just because there's a test on this list doesn't necessarily mean that I have to do it. Alternatively, just because there's not a test on this list doesn't necessarily mean I don't have to do it. So, so this is where the engineering and the biology have to be combined with the regulation. I see, regrettably, a lot of my regulatory colleagues, they focus on just the regulation. Here are the regulatory requirements without considering the engineering and the biology. And in my opinion, that's a huge mistake. You know, there's an adage, you know, Sean, I come from a very strong medical background. I used to teach medical school part-time. There's an adage I used to share with my med students, and that is the surgery went perfectly, but the patient died anyway. Well, the engineering equivalent of that is 
we designed the medical device perfectly, but the patient died anyway. The regulatory equivalent of that is we followed the regulation perfectly. We did all that FDA or Health Canada or whoever asked us to do, and yet the patient died anyway. Unfortunately, these things happen more, more frequently than some people would like to admit. And I think one of the main reasons, perhaps the root cause, as engineers like to say, is this checkbox on a form mentality. This is, this is not um, the way this, this game is supposed to be played. So, obviously, your opinion of the use of, of biomaterials and these, uh, specifically the ones that are uh, bio-friendly materials, uh, uh, your opinion of those is, is pretty obvious. What do you say to a company as a, as a, uh, a medical device consultant, you know, what do you say to a company who says, well, you know, we, we have this device, we have this implantable, uh, but we just like to stick with the, the you know, the standard biomaterial options and, and go from there, choose one of those. Well, what's your response? Well, it's an excellent question, Sean, and the reason why, quite frankly, is because it's a very pragmatic question. So to those companies, and I work with a lot of those companies, to those companies, I would say this, to quote a famous politician, I feel your pain, uh, but with all due respect, if everybody felt that way, um, uh, we'd, st we'd still be living in caves, right? So we can do better. So the first of all, you have to ask yourself the question, is, is, are the materials, if you're using, you know, standard synthetic, uh, the, the, the typical sort of traditional biomaterials, if those materials are doing the job for you, then great. You know, if it ain't broke, don't, don't fix it, right? But I remember, you know, I started out in this business uh, almost 25 years ago as an R&D engineer. There were a lot of medical devices that we would have liked to design that we could not design because we did not have the materials that would meet the, the, the needs, okay? So um, uh, I think we need more companies willing to at least consider. And again, I don't want to overgeneralize here. There are companies, you mentioned one, there are others. There are companies that are doing this. It's just that we need a lot more of them. And, and by the way, one other thing I will add with regard to the, to the um, regulatory and the FDA piece, clearly the path, the path of least resistance is to go with a material that's already uh, in use, that's already known. I'll give you an example. So given a choice, a medical device company is, is, uh, is developing a new medical device. Let's say it's a 510K device. Given a choice between developing this new device using an existing material versus a new device using a new material, which option do you think they're going to choose, Sean? Probably 95 or maybe 99 times out of 100. Right, exactly. The, the, the more established material. That's exactly right. They're going to go with the new device and existing material. Why? Because it's easier. Because when it comes to, you, you, in either case, you have to validate the device because the device is new. But when it comes to the material, if you're using a material that has a history, especially if it's got a history of being used in similar devices in the same part of the body, in other words, if you have a blood contact device and you're using a material that has been used in other blood contact devices, then from a regulatory and even from an engineering perspective, it becomes almost a no-brainer. 
um, you can just simply point to what's been done before and say, you know, end of discussion, let's move on to the next thing. However, in the other scenario, when you're talking about developing a new device with a new material, now not only do you have to validate the new device, you have to validate the new material, and that takes a whole bunch of effort, uh, it, it, it will, you know, I'll be honest, it will take time, it will take money, there's no question about it, but it doesn't have to take as much time or as much money as some people might think. And this comes back to the tick box on the form mentality I described a moment ago. Um, when you begin with the engineering and the biology uh, and figure out what makes sense, you know, one of the things I pride myself on as a regulatory consultant is, unlike a lot of my regulatory Colleagues, let's be honest, Sean, many regulatory folks and companies are viewed as the police because they're constantly telling R&D and manufacturing and other areas what they cannot do. And I do not take that approach. On the contrary, I pride myself. A company comes to me and says, hey, Mike, we've got this technology that we think is here in Boston, we would say wicked cool. I would say, great, here's at least one, probably multiple ways that we can get it through the FDA or Health Canada or whoever you're dealing with and get it onto the market. So the first thing that we have to uh, acknowledge is that these things are possible because, as you just mentioned earlier, there are some companies, and not just the great big companies like you mentioned, but there are uh, some companies, even smaller ones, that are doing exactly this. Yeah, absolutely. Uh and unfortunately, though, that, that is all the time we have for this, uh, this episode of Mike on MedTech. Uh, I mean, always, always a pleasure to speak with, with you, Mike. And uh, I hope this was another valuable uh, uh, session for the audience. Uh, you know, if you have any topics or, or uh, suggestions for topics, please reach out to me uh, at Sean, or I'm sorry, S. Fensky at rodmanmedia.com or you can just click on the uh, the link uh, below uh, and we will try and tackle that in an upcoming session so uh, we hope you'll listen in next month when we have yet another mic on medtech and until then uh, looking forward to uh, to getting any thoughts and comments from you thanks a lot <laughs>